I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host John has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and GO team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, John, we've made it through the holidays. It was one of those periods of time where, you know, you try to let go of some of the uh, the accident investigation and the aviation safety issues that we've been talking about previous to the holiday, but we just couldn't get away from it. I watched it all happen. I know you did, too. A lot of interesting events took place. Of course, uh, we now know that uh, there's some additional documents that have been presented to the folks up on the hill from Boeing. We're not necessarily sure what's in those new documents, but it sounds like maybe some additional information from Mark Forkner, who was the technical pilot working for Boeing at the time, may have some additional information. And of course, that in and of itself could either add to the already desperate picture of of what's going on at Boeing, or, you know, it could probably or possibly mitigate some of the stuff. But again, we don't know for sure, and we probably won't until somebody up on the Hill gives us a synoptic of those uh, documents. Yeah, but personally, Greg, I'm usually skeptical of, of what the press says about some of these uh, major revelations. I mean, during development of a product, you have all sorts of disconnects that happen, and uh, they get corrected. And you also have all sorts of concerns from people. You know, I spent a number of years in my life as the uh, lowly shop steward on the floor of a maintenance organization. And I would have people come to me repeatedly with complaints, like the sky was falling, this, the airplane was going to crash. And then when you take a step back and take a look at it, there, there were issues, but they weren't calamities. Right? They were things that needed to be addressed. So in this environment we're in today, if the press had ever gotten their hands on those similar events, it would be the end of the world for whatever they were reporting on. And I agree with you. And the, and the fact is, is that the information that actually came out of Forkner originally all had to do with the simulator and people blew it out of proportion and they made stories about it, that he was talking about the airplane and that the MCAS was running wild in the airplane, when in fact, none of that was true. It was a false narrative. They had taken it out of context to build a story that had a false narrative. And I have a feeling that a lot of these documents may be along those same lines that Mark was putting out, that he was talking about some of the issues in the development of the simulator to simulate the MCAS in, you know, as these guys would be flying it. You and I got to experience flying the MCAS, both the old software and the new software, during our visit early in December. And with that, we understand 
what its function is. There is still a grave misunderstanding of the purpose and the intent of MCAS. I keep reading these articles that are just driving me nuts when it comes to why MCAS was put on the airplane. It wasn't because the engines were so big and it created this big pitch up that, yes, that is part of aerodynamics and, and, and the fact that this does have an effect on the airplane. But that wasn't the purpose for installing the MCAS software on the airplane. It was to meet a certification requirement when it came to stick force as the airplane got into high pitch attitudes towards stall. One point, Greg, that I would like to go back to, the visit to Boeing. Boeing offered us and a number of other people a expense-paid vacation, essentially, to go out and, and uh, look at the MCAS, look at the improvements, and also talk to the people, senior management and other management engineers that were responsible for pieces of this puzzle that they put back together. But one thing that I want to make sure is perfectly clear, that you and I accepted the invitation to go, but we went on our own nickel, so yep. to speak. Yep. We accepted no money from Boeing. We paid our own food. We paid our own hotel. We paid our own transportation in its entirety. Yes. We accepted nothing because we did not want to compromise the positions that we have. To me, it's clear that feeling that we had was probably because of our NTSB background, where it was pounded into our head that you can't accept any of these gifts or any gratuities from anybody and still remain neutral. So as a rule of thumb, we just normally, routinely, and without precedent, do not accept any gifts from anybody. We do not compromise our integrity and our opinions. And, I, and I've said this before, that if you took the max out of this equation and you put an Airbus airplane in there, or you put a Bombardier or an Embraer airplane in these same circumstances, I'd defend the airplane. Why? Because I'm not defending the airplane. As I've said a number of times, John, and you and I have had this discussion, we are not defending the 737 MAX. If an Airbus or a Bombardier or an Embraer product was in the same situation, we would defend the facts, conditions, and circumstances of that particular airplane. It is not the airplane. It is the facts that we are defending and interpreting. It is the conditions and the circumstances. And when you look at the Indonesian report, which we're going to do in very great detail, the fact of the matter is, is that a lot of this information, especially now, every time there is something involving a Boeing product, especially the MAX, there is all of these news stories that pop up, or we're going to take factoids out of the stories and build another sexy story. And it's not based on reality. It creates false narratives. It puts a false impression out there in the flying public. And as we'll see, when you and I start dissecting the operational aspect using the Indonesians' facts, conditions, and circumstances, it will be clear that this airplane was flyable and was flying for better than 11 minutes before it crashed. And it was flying under the control of primarily the captain 
and then control eventually was lost by the first officer. And you and I are going to hit this hard with their own facts. We're not making this stuff up. We're not creating this stuff. We're not misinterpreting it. We're not spinning it like a lot of people want to believe we are. We're going to use these facts. And when you look at it, the facts speak for themselves. So regardless of whose product was flying, if these same events took place, we'd be defending the product because the facts speak towards pilot issues, not an airframe issue. It drives me to make the point that, you know, investigations take a long time. So why do they take a long time? Because it's factual based. You dig through all the rubble, you dig through all the paperwork, you interview a lot of people at times only to come down to a set of facts that you could make a conscious decision that is based upon something substantial, not emotional issues, not political influence, just the facts. You know, sometimes I like to, to say that old uh, police show that was on TV. Yeah, Dragnet. Dra- Dragnet. Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. Yeah. That's a good segue into the fact that one of the other major events that took place over the holiday was the fact that the CEO of Boeing left the company. Dennis Mullenberg, who was the face of Boeing since uh, the Lion Air accident over a year ago, he had been criticized heavily, not only in the media, but of course up on the Hill. You and I have been critical of some of the things that he was saying throughout the course of of the past year, because some of it wasn't fact-based. And I know that you and I had these discussions about why is he saying that? Why didn't he go down and talk to the investigators? Why is he putting himself in this company in a very bad position? Why isn't he defending factual positions versus the emotional position that you were just talking about? And I, I think now, you know, it's, it's finally come to a head. He is going away, but that too creates a new problem. The first problem, I think, is going to be how Boeing is going to recover, who they're going to replace him with. I know that they've already got a new CEO in place, but is that really the ticket for ending some of the problems, if not all the problems, that Boeing's going to face? Well, at least the two people that are coming in know Boeing, and they have pretty substantial credentials on their own. So I think as far as the outside world, the investor community, I think that that will be a little welcome relief of some of those folks. The employees, they need to have somebody to rally around. And many of the employees felt like they were not uh, appreciated and, and not stood up for, so to speak, with the comments that were coming out of Dennis. And I don't think Dennis is a, is a bad individual. I mean, you and I talked with him yes, at, we did. at length in, in Seattle. Yes. Uh, I don't think he's a bad person, but I think he stepped out on a on a uh, a limb that turned out to be not very substantial. And I think that, you know, again, when we've looked at all of the facts, we can't understand why he would go out and, and push the fact that, yes, we are responsible. It is our product. Okay, there is a level of responsibility. But when the facts suggest, and actually more than suggest, they implicate a flight crew who should have been able to fly this airplane successfully back to the runway, which the crew the day before did on this Indonesian Lion Air flight, it doesn't make sense to me why you wouldn't stick to the facts and push the facts to support your case. And and I think 
one of the other problems now, and again, this is uh, coming to light. A lot of uh, a lot of the financial journals are starting to write about it, and that is that although Dennis is now leaving the company, they're talking about the parachute that he's taking with him. That thirty-nine to sixty million dollar paycheck he's going to leave the company with. That's going to set very poorly, if not very badly, with the folks that work for Boeing, because as I understand it, they didn't get any bonus this year. So you pay a guy who put a company in a position of jeopardy, both financially and with their reputation. He walks away with between, you know, 40 and $60 million, yet the hardworking you know, people at Boeing who produce these airplanes and, and are doing it with high levels of character and integrity are suffering and going to suffer, not only today, not tomorrow, but for quite a long time. It's going to be years before they undo all the, the mess that's been made over these two and mistakes that were made in the open. It's unfortunate for all those concerned, including the rest of the U.S., because Boeing is is the largest uh, exporter of products in the U.S. dollar value, and it helps our balance of payment. Selling all those airplanes to China helps offset all the all the Chinese toys we buy at Christmas and other times. Yeah. So it's it's uh, really a big piece of the puzzle, and to have Congress beating up on them, and oftentimes without factual basis, yeah. is really frustrating. And we've come to expect that from Congress. It's all politics to them. If they see a personal gain for themselves or their party, they're going to take it. And regardless of of the pain and suffering it causes throughout America. And I was really surprised to see even some of our U.S. carriers doing the same thing. The fact is, is that, yes, are there issues with the airplane? Yes. Are they as dramatic as have been portrayed in the media? You and I don't think so based on what we know of the facts, conditions, and circumstances. But I was really disappointed that a lot of the airlines basically you know, pushed back on Boeing. They're a U.S. manufacturer. Why would our U.S. carriers push back? I understand they put pilots and, and flight attendants and passengers on those airplanes because you and I are on them all the time. And I believe in the highest levels of safety. And, of course, there has to be accountability. But to be pushing so hard against them and then have a couple of the airlines take their orders away from Boeing and, for whatever reason, decide to go out and buy Airbus. Guess what? Airbus isn't clean either. It's just the fact that they haven't lost an airplane and killed people, but they do have some serious safety issues, as well as some of the other manufacturers. You know, an interesting little factoid that never made the press hardly anywhere is that immediately after this Lion Air crash and the Ethiopian crash, Airbus took stock of their training of their pilots. Yes. And they sent teams out around the world, nice and quiet, nobody reported it, nice and quiet, to talk to their customers around the world and revise their training syllabuses in some cases, right, to make sure that the pilots that they were producing could handle their airplane, because it is different. Uh, it's a, it's essentially a, uh, a game, you know. It's an automated cockpit as compared to Boeing. Boeing assumes you're going to have a, a skilled pilot in the cockpit, yeah. and Airbus assumes that you're not going to have a skilled pilot, and they, they make the Nintendo game. Yeah. Robust enough to fly the airplane without the pilot. And I was surprised because United, right after the Lion Air and even after the Ethiopian accident, stood firm that they stood behind the airplane and they definitely stood by the fact that they had the, quote, best trained pilots in the world. 
And then all of a sudden, you know, seven, eight, nine months later, this big change of heart, we're going to an Airbus, we're buying 54 or 55 Airbuses. Now, I know some of it is economics. They're trying to put airplanes into service. They got to make up for it because they don't know when the 37 is going to be or the MAX is going to be returned to service. And I understand some of that, but I can't imagine that they're going to get those 55 airplanes in short order to make up those gaps in their schedule. No, they're, they're way out, actually. But United has a history of splitting orders between Airbus and in Boeing. Yeah, it was just that it was the timing of it because they had been so supportive, you know, up until now. And that brings up another point, and that is the return to service. There's a lot of discussion about the fact of when this airplane is going to be returned to service. Now, when you and I were out there and we talked to the folks, you know, all I mean, this airplane's been flying. The MAX has been flying under test conditions and in the uh, in the simulator to test the new software that's basically just about done, if not done already. But, you know, the question is, well, why isn't the airplane going to come back into service till March? I guess United has pushed their return to service to June. And I think one of the big things, of course, the FAA has made a big splash that we are not putting this airplane back into service until we believe it's safe. Granted, that's just the obvious. We know from experience, that the FAA is not going to put themselves out of limb because there is so much visibility and, and publicity about this airplane. Granted, understand that. But the question is, why aren't they going to put it into service in the very near future? I think it's politics more than anything else. I think that the heat that's on the airplane has led the bureaucrats to take the very slow road. And we're going to analyze every detail. We're going to make no assumptions. So if this same process were applied to new airplanes coming down the pike, we'd never get the airplane off the ground. Yeah. And I, and I think one of the other things is, is that the FAA wants to try and get an understanding of all the other regulatory authorities around the world. They want this airplane returned to service all at one time. To try and piecemeal a return to service, if we allow the airplane to start flying here in the United States, but it's not allowed to fly anywhere else in the world, that still creates a problem for airlines and trying to schedule, trying to move their fleet so that they have some airplanes that can fly international. I, I think that the FAA is really working hard with these other certification authorities to get everybody on board at the same time so that when it, it's returned to service, it's not a regional return to service, but in fact, a global return to service. And I think that's why some of the airlines have put the return to to service date out to like the middle of next year. And that's because the pilot training issues. Yeah, These pilots haven't flown for already six months. It's going to be another three months probably. Yeah, So they're going to want to get all of their pilots for their existing fleets through all the training, more moving airplanes around cockpit time before they put the airplanes on the service. And I think that you bring up a good point with training because not all the airlines are going to use the same training methodology. Some will put their pilots in the simulator and fly certain profiles. Others will just stick with the CBT, that computer-based training or a combination thereof. Because again, I know that we've had some talking heads up on the hill who think they're training experts. You know, every hour of training that you add to an airline training program is millions, tens of millions of dollars. And it's not just stroking the pen and adding a 15-minute, 
you know, course amongst all the other information that pilots have to fly in training. That's millions of dollars. And so it's going to take a, a real hard look to see where you're going to get the best bang for your buck. Do you really need to fly a profile where you and I flew it? where now it's only going to activate the MCAS once, which is similar to the runaway trim. It's going to give you a nose-down trim, and all you do is react to it. I mean, you don't necessarily need to do that physically because you're already doing it with a runaway trim scenario. But if you couch it that, look, MCAS operates or mirrors a runaway trim. If you can handle runaway trim, you can handle an MCAS event because you're not analyzing whether MCAS is triggered or not, even though now the system will tell you whether it's MCAS. But the fact is, is that if that trim is moving uncommanded, you, the pilot, need to react to, hey, Charlie, are you doing that? No, I'm not doing that. The airplane's doing it. Now we got to take it out of the system, figure it out. And either then go back and use the system because we understand what triggered it, or we put the airplane on the ground somewhere. You know, is it too far fetched to believe that the crew in these in these airplanes lost situational awareness, maybe got complacent on takeoff? I mean, that trim wheel is running by your leg. I mean, if you sat there and had that thing running right next to you, I mean, it's hard to miss. It makes a racket too. Yeah. I mean, the only things that, and again, we're going to really get into the Indonesian report, but the only thing that made a lot of racket in that cockpit when we were flying the airplane, and it wasn't really a lot of racket, it was, I mean, it was noticeable, that was the stick shaker when it fired, and then, of course, the trim moving. There was no bells and whistles, there was no pandemonium, there was, there was no confusion, there was no loud noises. There wasn't a, the inability to communicate with the guy sitting next to me. We were talking in a normal voice. And in fact, we're going to show in the Indonesian report, using their own words, that there wasn't pandemonium and confusion going on. And that these two crew members were conversing in a normal voice like you and I are doing now. And that the first officer kept talking to the air traffic controller in a normal voice. There was, yeah. there was no, nothing out of the ordinary other than the fact that you got a stick shaker going and a trim moving every once in a while. You know, I, I was also very surprised by some of the Talking Heads pilots that, on TV. You know, one very famous pilot, another one who is out there talking all the time about the noise in the cockpit. But yet when you look through the report, one of the things that jumped out, and I've not heard anybody other than us mention it, and that's it, that they could hear the pages in the manual turn. That's probably the most stunning thing I read in this report. If there was all this pandemonium and confusion and the bells and the whistles that, you know, one of the famous pilots who flew, supposedly flew the simulator didn't know if he could handle all of this, get out of the airplane. Because when you and I flew it, and of course the Indonesians are writing about it, and they're putting in their report, what they identified on the cockpit voice recorder, they synopsized not only the conversation, but the background sounds when they wrote not once, but twice that they could hear the paper pages turning on the cockpit area microphone. That was recorded on the CVR. They could hear the first officer turning the pages of the manual. It couldn't have been that loud. <laughs> and when I tell reporters that... Uh, they just glass over their eyes. They don't. Yeah, they don't understand. Yeah, they don't understand the gravity of the fact that if you can hear pages being turned, 
than there weren't all these bells and whistles to drown it out. The crew wasn't yelling at each other to communicate, kind of like with Aloha. When you have part of the airplane leave, you know, and you got all open sky there, and it's noisy and windy and everything else, and they had to yell at each other and use hand signals, that's not what was happening here. This airplane was relatively quiet. Yeah, you had the stick shaker. It vibrates. It makes noise. But the louder element was the trim wheel because it's just clanking next to your leg against the center pedestal. And it, it's obvious when it moves. But there were no, you know, disagree between the airspeeds and the, the altitude disagrees. Those are lights. They don't make noise. The only other noise, and again, we're going to hit it hard, the only other noise that was recorded by the Indonesians in their synoptic was the overspeed clacker. But that didn't happen until just seconds before the airplane went into the ground. There was no overspeed clacker, at least not what the Indonesians have said, throughout the flight. That flight was a little over 11 minutes. The only sounds that were recorded on the CVR, stick shaker and trim. And it's just, I wish these human factors folks, that especially one that went up on the hill and portrayed to the folks up on the hill and to the public, misinformation. If all you do is read the report, that's all they had to do. Well, some people are commenting off what other people have commented because they all assume that everybody has it right. And uh, the report doesn't support much of what was said to Congress. And, and there is a lot of confusion, and, and it's just, it is sad because there is so much misinformation out there. And the pilots that I know you've talked to and I've talked to that fly the MAX love the airplane. And, of course, we have uh, a young lady who, she's now been on the show several times. She is a 737 MAX captain, very well-versed in the airplane and very conversant. And she absolutely loves the airplane. It's the best handling airplane, according to the guys I've talked to. They really appreciate it. And guess what? They're well-trained. And they'll tell you that. It's not me telling you that. They'll tell me, look, I'm a pilot. I'm well-trained. I go through a professional training program at the carrier I fly for. If I can't handle these things, then I shouldn't be in the cockpit. Yeah, they teach the airplane. You know, it's ironic that that uh, all that talking, nobody has talked about that fact that in the U.S. we haven't had the problems, nor in, in uh, Western Europe. Yeah. They have not had the problems. I didn't hear anybody once say, are we going to compare the training syllabuses in the U.S. to what happens outside of the U.S.? And, and that's what I was disappointed about, again, with this report and the fact that they never went into Lion Air's training program. They talk about the crew training, what they were trained on and the failures, and we're going to hit that hard as well. But they never dissected the training program and then compared it. They didn't compare it. And, uh, and I don't know what the Ethiopians are going to do other than probably, you know, cut and paste a lot of stuff that came out of the Indonesian report. But it's a travesty because... When you look at the, the responsibility of a, an approved training program, yeah, the manufacturer puts a training program together, but it's not approved. I mean, they, they, it is by our FAA for the manufacturer. But when that, when that airplane goes to Lion Air or it goes to Ethiopia, it's their respective certifying authority, similar to our FAA, that approves their training program. There was no discussion in this Lion Air report about that, whether it was, you know, what the approved was, what was dissected as far as taken out of the training, how the training was conducted, who approved it, how it was approved, and were there any changes after all the other events that Lion Air has had? 
leading up to Flight 610 and then even after Flight 610. And it, it gets even worse from there because the maintenance organizations that they were using to fix their airplanes, it was not their own maintenance. It was contracted out, even though it was owned by the parent company of Lion Air. It was an arm-length MRO. And I look at that, and I, I sometimes I want to cry. Sometimes I scream. <laughs> I know. I mean, I know you've been screaming at me about it. Just, I mean, every time we we review these uh, the, the report and we review the facts, I mean, you're always bringing something up. I can't believe they did that. I can't believe that they got away with that. I can't believe they were able to do that. And some of it seems to be so systemic that it seems to be the norm. Yes. I mean, it just oh, we can't fix the airplane because it's it's raining out. So take it to the next station. <laughs> that was the most ridiculous thing I read, is that they, because they were worried about lightning. Really? So you're not going to fix a safety-critical part because it was raining and it was lightning, and you just decided to tell the crew, hey, milk it back to a place where they can put it in a hangar and look at it when it's not raining. Really? I mean, Boy, it, I wish I had that luxury when I was working. I, <laughs> it was below zero and blowing like crazy. Yeah, I mean, but that is the compromise to safety. Those are the things that jeopardize lives. And it's just, it, it was just unfathomable to read some of the stuff in this report. And again, it's not your words, it's not my words, and it's not our spin on the facts. The facts are the facts. And when you just lay the facts out, especially in a timeline, that portrays an ugly picture, but not for the airplane. And that's the sad part of all of you know, these accidents. And they, ba- and they barely mention it in the causal factors or, or any uh, recommendations for improvements. Yep. I mean, yeah. just to have the airplane flying around for 20 days with these problems and nobody nobody picking up on it. Although some of it jumps out at me, the fact that they didn't write things up repeatedly. So there, there had to be a culture there of verbally telling maintenance of the problems. But there's two problems with that. One is... And when verbal communications can be confused, did the person receiving my words understand them? Yes. Did he hear what I said accurately? But the second part of it is that the incoming crew that's going to take that out in the next flight is denied the opportunity to see the status of the airplane, to take a look at that system. You know, so maybe if these guys had known that the day before this airplane had flown the whole day with the stick shaker going off that they would have been much keener when an event happened. Yeah, we've talked about it, the fact that these guys didn't have the uh, the opportunity to really know what, do the health check, if you will, because, you know, it's like a doctor. They come into, your, you know, to the examining room. They've got a clipboard. They got your file there, basically, your records, and they go, okay, Mr. Golia, what's, uh, what's going on today? You know, they've got some history on you. These guys had very limited history, and it was Benign history. It was talking about the automatic direction finder being in-op and stuff that was really just nothing. It was so benign. The good stuff wasn't in the book. That's how come these guys, when they took off and they got stick shaker, they probably would have had a better understanding of, oh my gosh, you know, Charlie and Bill yesterday had stick shaker, you know, in flight. Guess what? We got another problem. It's happened to us. It's a different mindset. And they probably would have turned around at that point. Yeah. If they knew it was a repeat item, the stick shaker, yeah. when the first officer asked the captain his intentions, yeah, uh, the captain at that point, if he'd been aware of the day before his activities, he may have said, 
tell them we're coming back. Yeah, we're going back to the airport rather than now nah, we're going out to a holding pattern and do whatever we're going to do out there. It is all of these little insidious things. You and I look at the details. We identify these details and we try to put these details in context because no one else is looking at it. They're looking at the 60,000 foot view, trying to poke the big bear, whether it's Boeing or FAA or someone else. And that's not where safety is going to be fixed. Yes. Are there problems within Boeing? Yeah, we saw it. We even heard about it. They have an organization that is, you know, a bit siloed, where these guys work in their own little silos. There's not a lot of crosstalk and and sharing of information. But based on what we heard when we were out there, it sounds like those walls, those silo walls are coming down. There's going to be a lot more info sharing within the organization, a lot more oversight, not only between Seattle Everett, but also now on the East Coast out of South Carolina. Those are all great, but how does that actually apply to the aircraft at hand that's sitting on the ramp getting ready to fly? Or how does that actually relate to the flight crew that's going to manipulate those flight controls in that airplane? Yeah, we got a couple of hundred airplanes sitting out there, some all around the world, flight crews that are now rusty, so to speak, with with the they haven't been flying this airplane in a while, so they're going to have to be retrained. Yep. And are they going to get the benefit of all the knowledge that uh, is coming out of Boeing? And we got to see firsthand. Yes. As the, is it going to get diluted as it goes off? Boeing is going to have their hands full pushing on some of these authorities in uh, certain parts of the and, world. And, and I think it's going it, it, to, I mean... What Boeing has told us is that they've got teams of guys going out to the air carriers trying to talk the technical stuff with the pilots and the flight attendants and get the flight attendants back on board. We actually had three flight attendants groups represented when we were out at Boeing, and they were trying to understand the technical aspects. Why? Because they're not, they're not actually manipulating the flight controls, but they want to have a comfort level that when they're working in the back, they're not worried about what's going on up front, and they're going to be the first line of defense for the airplane, if you will, when it is returned to service, when passengers are constantly asking them, is this a 737 MAX? Is it safe to fly? And it, it brings me back. Do you remember when we were having all of the structural issues with the, quote, older airplanes and passengers would get on and they would ask the flight crew or the, the flight attendant, where's the data plate? How old is this airplane? <laughs> yeah, right. I remember that. I mean, for months, I, I was getting on airplanes and... These people would stop and they'd look at the door jam looking for this plate or they'd ask the flight attendant or if the pilots were standing there, how old is this airplane? Okay, it was built in, you know, 1972. You going to get off? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, Boeing has a long way to go. They do have a lot of issues internally that we know that they're starting to fix because we saw some of those fixes taking place. Um but again, it's evolutionary. It's, it's not going to happen overnight. The same with the FAA. The FAA is not clean in all of this. And, and while people have characterized this love-in relationship and the FAA allows Boeing to self-certify, there is no such thing as self-certifying. Right. It's a designate. It brings a completed product to the FAA, and the FAA has to accept it. Exactly. In fact, I, I yeah. And, and when Mark Forkner said, hey, you know, when they made a pitch to the FAA about taking information that was in the flight manual, out of the flight manual about MCAS, the FAA could have said, no, you're going to leave it in. But the FAA said, yeah. Because it's a runaway trim. 
People, you know, I say it over and over, but I don't think it's sinking in. We have been dealing with trim systems in runaway trim training since the 50s. Yes. Yeah. And that probably one of the reasons why Western trained pilots don't seem to have a problem with the airplane with MCAS is because they've been trained repeatedly, most likely, on runaway trim and how to deal with it, how to recognize it first, yeah. and how to deal with it. You know, it's all about staying plugged in. You know, I was asked about, well, maybe these guys were complacent. Well, you know, I would have an easier time making that argument with a pilot that's very well-trained, flies the airplane all the time, very knowledgeable on the airplane, and kind of gets a little lackadaisical. But based on what you and I have read and what I've experienced when I was over in Indonesia working accidents and in that part of the world, it's not complacency. They just don't know because they haven't been trained. They don't know how to fly. With And, and it's evident in this report. The captain in this, uh, in the Lion Air accident, twice asked the first officer to fly. Twice. I'm the captain, and I'm not going to fly the airplane. I'm going to turn a sick airplane over to the first officer. Now, there are times when that scenario is appropriate, but I don't think it was appropriate in this scenario. Why? Because the captain had the airplane under control the majority of the flight. It wasn't until the very end when he finally turned control over, told the first officer, take control of the airplane. That's what a mistake the captain made right there is because he had figured it out yes. to put back in the trim that was taken out by MCAS. Yeah. So let's say MCAS took out three degrees, uh, three units. He put back in three units. When he turned it over to the first officer, he never articulated that. The first officer didn't realize that the airplane was under control yeah. as long as they kept bringing the trim back into the green, so to yeah. speak. And, and of course, <laughs> I mean, okay, so the airplane wants to keep diving down. You keep pulling the trim to get nose back up. The airplane is relatively under control. How many times do you have to pickle that trim before it sinks in that, you know what, let's just turn off the stab trim and make this thing happen manually? I mean, the captain was astute in the fact that he would take out what was going in. But it was just, it was, uh, just very interesting that how many times are you going to let this go? And why didn't after the second or third time, it was like, what the heck's going on here? I'll just turn it off and we'll figure it out. And we're going to get really into that as we go line by line through the, the first part of this report because it is the storytelling. The one question I wanted to ask you, going back to the maintenance aspect, is if, let's say, that kind of scenario where you had a sick airplane back in the beginning of October, October 9th in this case, where you had some issues with the airplane and, you know, the airplane went back into service and it was unairworthy. And then it goes to an outstation and these guys go, well, you know what, <laughs> can you milk the airplane back to, back to Atlanta or back to Chicago or back to home plate somewhere because they can fix the airplane? Would a crew here in the United States or anybody in their right mind take a sick airplane and milk that airplane back? Not with a flight control problem. Not with a critical flight instrument problem. They're not going to do it. Now, they would take some systems. I mean, we've pushed airplanes that had fuel quantity problems. Right? So the way you address it is you fill the airplane up with fuel. Yeah. You ensure that it's full. You don't use the automatic system. Yeah. Right? Make sure you, you see fuel in the top of the tank. Okay, we know we got more than fuel that we need. We can go with 
the fuel system. So sometimes you'll push lower level things, but flight controls, primary instruments, no way. And I just don't, I don't understand why that crew would accept the airplane, unless, of course, you said it earlier, and that is, that was a culture that became the norm in that organization. That's what it looks like when I read through this report. Yeah, and and there's no way. I I mean, of all the maintenance folks that I've ever had an opportunity to interact with, and I know a lot of the folks at the various airlines and just being around you, I cannot imagine a maintenance technician would ever go out and say, yeah, well, you know what? It was raining, really couldn't do the work. Can you take the airplane? <laughs> can you take the airplane anyway? I can picture a couple of bosses that I had. If they ever heard that I said that, I would have been in serious trouble. And how would they have traplined that? What would have been the process? Let's say this kind of scenario existed here in the States. How would that have been caught so that this airplane never made it to the line until it was fixed? Uh, between your QA department, the line supervisor, production supervisor, and the crew chiefs, they all have to put their name on this at some point. So they have to have confidence in what they put their name to. Now, over in that part of the world, we don't train. We had we had somebody on the show, George Snyder. He said it was common to have six untrained people for every trained person yeah. in the maintenance department. I was department. really surprised. I, I, I experienced that firsthand, but I didn't know that number. And uh, there has been a push to even make that number larger. So if you're not trained, that means you're going to do what you're told, essentially. You're going to have very little knowledge to do independent thinking. And when that happens, if you're not being watched carefully, it's very easy to get off. It's very easy for a person that's not trained to say that to the crew. That it's, uh, it's raining, take it to the next station and not even recognize what a primary flight control is. And then I'm just surprised that a, a flight crew would fly for an hour and a half with the stick shaker just going off again. I mean, it is noisy, but it's not unbearable. The airplane was flyable. It's obvious because they were able to, to fly it for an hour and a half and successfully land it. But the fact that a flight crew with a, like you said, a critical flight system, you know, the stick shaker going off, which is the primary stall warning system. How do you discern then if you did get the airplane into a stall? How do you know whether it's fact or fiction? <laughs> You don't. Yeah. I'm amazed. And not put it in the book. Yeah. That's the uh, bigger you, thing, not I, putting it in the book. You, you, you denied everybody that comes after you the ability to know that this airplane had something strange going on. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's the tragedy. They don't even mention him and what happened to him. No, they don't. And and how would the FAA handle that? How does the FAA handle it when there's nothing in the logbook or the, the logbook write-up is improper, not you know, not dealt with properly. Not dealt with properly, yeah. That's called enforcement action. Yeah. The, the FAA would come down. One thing that the FAA does very well is paperwork. And I can tell you that, that the, my years at the, at the airline, we had hundreds of guys, hundreds in trouble because the logbook signature, the, not their signature, but the logbook repair the entry, information, yeah. the entry, they didn't like. Incomplete, and, right? Didn't adequately address the write up. The FAA was very good at picking up on those. And John, you and I saw this with ValueJet when they were doing all of the work and they went up and they supposedly had the uh, the pencil party in the hangar trying to fill out logbook records and, and that kind of stuff. And and again, yes, the FAA, the, their oversight, they're in it, they're on it, and, and they take action for it. But 
this report, the Lion Air report by the Indonesians, was silent on any of that. I mean, for all we know, those guys that were involved with those maintenance actions over there are still doing maintenance or supposed maintenance on airplanes that are in line service. I mean, where's the safety? Where's the trap line to get those kinds of guys out of the system so that this type of event doesn't happen again? No, there's no evidence that they had any desire to do that at all. Yeah. They just, they didn't do anything with the training. And, you know, something that I've heard from the days when I was learning to fly, essentially it's changed over the years a little bit. But you train the way you fly, you fly the way they train. Yep. So if you have a thorough, good training program, then you're going to be a good pilot. If you have a lousy training program, you're not going to be a good pilot. And that holds true in the maintenance That's uh, aspect too. as well. Right. And if you really think about it in the big picture, it also holds true with management. You have bad management training, you're going to be a bad manager. You have good management training, you're going to be a good manager. And all of these things, you know, have a ripple effect. They all feed on each other. They all have an interaction with each other. You can't, <laughs> you can't silo them and expect to have a perfect operation. Whether you're manufacturing the aircraft, whether you're operating the aircraft, fixing it, we call it flying, <laughs> whether you fly it, fix it, or manage it. You know? Right. And on the management side, you know, SMS, safety management systems, which are in vogue now in many pieces of aviation and might probably be in Boeing in the very near future. Yeah. But it relies upon a top-down commitment to safety. But when you look at some of these managers that are just driven by the bottom line, and we have a, we have had a carrier or two here in the U.S. was like that, ValueJet was yeah. one. Uh, they're just driven by the bottom line. That, that message goes all the way down to the lowest employee. If he doesn't care, why should I care? Exactly. And, I, and I, that's a perfect point, you know, when we, of course, saw it not only with ValueJet, but we saw it, I think, a little bit in some of the other maintenance-related accidents that, that we've done and you've definitely done over the years where, okay, let's just get this airplane out. we got to push this airplane. We're racing the clock. We saw that in Eagle Lake, Texas, where there wasn't good communication and they forgot to, you know, put in all of the, the screws in the uh, in the stabilizer on 47 that. screws left out. Yeah, you got them right down there. 47 screws, you know, 47 screws, the difference between life and death. And, and again, complacency, distraction, whatever you want to call it. Yes, there are human factors elements with all of this, but you got to have good oversight. You got to have character and integrity in the operation. It's one thing to have it as an individual, but you also have to have it in the operation. And in this case, you know, with Lion Air, you know, hey, just get that airplane moving, get it out of here, get it on schedule. We don't care, you know, milk it to another base because we're not going to fix it here in the rain. It's just, uh, that's, that's... It's, it's a travesty. <laughs> and, and it's just, that's the detriment to aviation safety. Good morning, John the Ground, Canadian 920. We're just coming up to Alpha Juliet. Well, I know that we've beat up on the current event subjects, and of course, we uh, we will always try to touch on those current events in each of the podcasts as they come up. But our next podcast, John and I are really going to get down and dirty with the dissection of, of the Lion Air report, because when we were both going through it, while there's a lot of information in this report, the whole story is told in the first probably 35 to 40 pages 
of the Indonesian report. There's a lot of factual information that follows it, but when you read the timeline in the history of flight, you can actually put the picture together, and you have to look at it with a critical eye. You have to look at what, what actions were going on. You have to look at the configuration of the airplane. You have to look at the timing between all of these events to really understand what was going on in the airplane that eventually led to the loss of the aircraft due to a high-speed controlled flight into terrain. And so John and I are going to start hitting on that over the next uh, few episodes of uh, Flight Safety Detectives. So with that being said, my friend John, do you have any parting words for our listening audience? It's a new year. The clock starts again on no accidents. Zero accidents is our goal. We're almost there. Yeah. In nine years, we'd serve well here in the U.S., and we need to make that goal or reality for the entire world. Yeah. No, I agree. I think, you know, we're always striving for that. And we've done a very good job here in the United States. When you start thinking about big airplane accidents where we had multiple fatalities, they become few and far between since 2001. And that's a testament to the, you know, the men and women, not only here in the United States, but, you know, around the world, their commitment to safety, of course, the, the commitment by the airline to provide the highest levels of education and training, the highest levels of equipment, that is the best equipment out there. And then, of course, having the operational discipline to do things right, even when nobody's looking. And that's really the emphasis where aviation safety makes its mark is doing it as it should be done. So with regard to all of that, we appreciate the listenership that we were able to garner over the last several months of, uh, of 2019. We really appreciate the feedback. John and I have really enjoyed this. We love hearing back from uh, the folks that are listening. We like the challenges that you present to us because we have gotten a number of emails with, uh, you know, questions, questioning some of the things we talk about. I try to answer them. John tries to answer them either on the air or uh, via email. And that's what keeps keeps us engaged as well, because we want to hear your perspective. We want to hear your feedback and see what you want us to talk about and address besides what John and I think is important as well. And to that end, we have a number of requests via email to examine a number of accidents, like the missing Malaysian airplane, yep. which is scheduled to, to uh, come after we finish this Boeing series. Yeah. And want to revisit a number of older accidents to clear up some misunderstandings, maybe a, a more clarity that some people would like. We intend to do that. And we also had a very interesting all-day session in New York just a few weeks ago with a bunch of students at Vaughn College in New York City, which is a Vaughn College of Aviation in New York City. So it's an aviation school, and we were in there with Captain Chenard, on the uh, 737 MAX captain that we have, and we did a session that was scheduled to, to run until 11 a.m. We started a little late. At, we was scheduled at 9. We started a little late, and we were still there at 2.30. Class ended. Nobody left. Yep. We had just a wonderful session, and now our problem is figuring out how we're going to cram all of that into a 30 or 40 minute session. Yeah. No, I was I was really impressed by the enthusiasm that these young people showed, the questions that they had um, when they finally broke out of their shell. 
they were very informative. They were inquisitive. And, you know, that's why you and I and uh, Shinar and the rest of the, uh, the faculty and staff at Vaughn, that's why we put this all together is to try and give back, to give some guidance. And, and these, I think, these kids got a, a better understanding of what the industry is all about and their opportunities that they, I don't think, really thought about because they've been so engrossed in school. And I think that based on the conversations I had with a number of the, the folks afterwards, they were really appreciative of the fact that we educated them on things that they hadn't really thought of or never even thought about pursuing. And I think that's what we're trying to do through this series as well. So we'll be doing more of that. We'll be integrating that. I know that I just got a request again via email now that the ntsb is putting out information on the atlas crash the 767 in houston things that i had said right after that accident appear to be coming to fruition not that i am clairvoyant but in this particular regard i had enough information early on to put a, a storyline together which appears to be coming to fruition but john and i are going to be talking about some of the hypocritical things because that accident is going to center on pilot qualifications, pilot experience, and pilot training that are, are going to be the center of attention in that particular investigation. We're going to be talking in how it relates to both Lion Air and Ethiopia. So we got a lot of good stuff coming up. We, again, appreciate all your comments. You know, if you like the way we say things and our style, great. If you don't like it, definitely tell us. We're not going to change, but we'll listen to you anyway, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, we might change. Yeah, a little bit. You know, in the... Uh I'm glad you raised that point about the Atlas Air Crew because we have taken quite a bit of criticism because we've been so hard on the two pilots, actually four pilots, two in each airplane, yeah. on their actions and their training and trying to get in their head what they were thinking. Unless you have good training, it's not unique to outside of the U.S. That's right. So, And it looks like that in this particular case, this Atlas Air, Airplane, that uh, we may very well come down to a number of training issues, deficiencies that occurred in the facilities that, that they, in fact, were. I mean, and you got to take a step back and look. The, the pressure that's on these pilots, these training organizations today is unprecedented. There just is not enough pilots to fill the cockpits of all these airplanes. Yep. So the pressure is mounting, causes people to, to sometimes make bad decisions. Sometimes, you know, the pilots may be deficient and the instructor may give them a pass on it because, it, you yeah. know, he, he talked to him about it and said, yeah. all right, he understands it now. Whatever the reasons, but there appear to be more people than I would like to see getting through training that uh, have problems. And, and some of the other issues that are going to come up, of course, is we have trap lines here in the United States where prospective employer can go back and get historical information about a pilot from another carrier that they may be flying with. And there was some deficiencies. The, the, the system broke down with one of the pilots in this particular accident, the Atlas accident. So that's going to be an issue that we're going to talk about. And then, of course, I just read an article over the uh, this past weekend with regard to all the competition amongst the cargo haulers. 
Of course, you got Amazon, which is Atlas using the Prime. So you have them trying to fulfill orders, you know, in minutes rather than hours. So there's a lot of pressure to get those airplanes in the air with all the cargo and stuff that they need to be moving from point A to point B. Of course, UPS used to move a lot of it. They've talked about backing out and letting them, letting Amazon do their own thing. And then, of course, FedEx and UPS, not only are they in competition with each other, but now they're in competition with Amazon slash Prime Air to move the mail, if you will, move the cargo. And so with all that competition to be bigger, better, faster, greater, that's what's putting a pressure on these carriers to fill those seats. And there was a term that was used in the Buffalo accident with Continental Express, and it was a very prominent term that you don't see. We saw it as an accident investigator, and that is trying to put butts in seats. You've got to put a butt, a pilot in those seats to make those airplanes go. And without those people, without those skilled pilots, you're going to be having a number of events that could take place because they aren't up to the task. They aren't as qualified as we'd like to see all of the pilots be. But again, you can still have a low-time pilot that's highly qualified, very well mentored and experienced, and be safe as a 25,000-hour pilot. Or you can have a 25,000-hour pilot be as dangerous as a 500-hour pilot. So all of these are the types of issues that John and I are going to be covering as we dissect the accidents and really talk about the issues that are coming to the forefront in this new year, 2020. So with that being said, I want to say thanks, as always, to my colleague and my cohort in crime, John Golia. We always have some entertaining discussions, <laughs> lively <laughs> debates, if you will, regarding issues and, and that kind of thing. Good thing the microphone's not on during some of those. Yeah, I'll tell you what, maybe we'll have to have another channel where it's X-rated because of the language we use with each other sometimes. So, But we always encourage you to feedback, you know, your comments. So please reach out to us via email. Our email is Flight Safety Detectives with an S at gmail.com. We want to know what you want so we can talk about it. And again, go to our website, Flight Safety Detectives. We appreciate you listening to our podcast. And uh, John and I are working on now making this a video podcast, hopefully getting into the YouTube channel. So then you can actually see us punching each other and pounding on each other as we're talking about these issues, throwing stuff across the room. So we'll make it entertaining as well as informative. So with that, I'm Greg Fife. This is the Flight Safety Detectives. We appreciate you listening. Fly safe. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at pama.org. And wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening. Take your holiday as seriously as British Airways Holidays takes your holiday. So ditch your desk, set your out-of-office on, and unwind on the white sandy beaches of the Dominican Republic. With an all-inclusive, family-friendly break at the Grand Palladium Palace Resort and Spa. Or luxurious adult-only getaway at the TRS Turquesa Hotel. 
Book now with a low deposit at ba.com slash palladium. T's and C's apply at all protected.